All right, everybody, if you want to get your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to look at two babies. A lot of times we think of one Christmas baby, and uh, there's actually a second baby that I also uh, want to recall the story of his birth and see how it ties in so well with uh, the birth of Christ who we're remembering today. And so as we start out, just reading the first four verses of Luke 1, 1, we see the purpose and the method of Luke's gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke, a physician, uh, someone who was an educated man of the day, uh, also a writer, is going to give us Uh, as we see the purpose there, an orderly account of the things that he has seen. He he knows that these things seem so fantastic. Who's going to believe it? Or is the story going to get mixed up? So his purpose just from the outset is just methodical, ordered account from an educated man for us to remember what all happened. And he's going to start out with essentially the Christmas story something that seems quite fantastic to us today or to the world today. And so it's good for us to know he's writing for a purpose to a specific individual, a man named Theophilus. And he wants Theophilus, as well as anyone who'd get this letter in their hands, to know with certainty the things that have been instructed. So the first part of the story that he gets into is actually going to be Um, the events leading up to the birth of John the Baptist. Okay, so looking at verse 5, we're going to see Zacharias ministering in the temple. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And so for a priest like Zacharias uh, to have, you know, the dice fall on you to be one who would burn the incense. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity, if that. So it's a very special day. He's won the lottery in a sense to finally do all that we trained to do, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's almost like in Oregon, you know, you draw a bighorn sheep tag, you know, it's just like that uh, once. Yeah. Look at all you guys. You're like, I, I can under. Offering incense in the temple, I don't get so much, but bighorn sheep, I'm totally on that one, you know, and you know, it's just that once in a life, you better not mess this up, right? You want that mount on your wall. 
And uh, so Zacharias is like, okay, you got to remember, uh, you walk in and you light the thing with your lighter, you know, or your whatever, you know, and uh, you got to gotta get this right. So it's an exciting day for him. He's probably going in with some trepidation, with some fear, with some trembling. And the whole multitude, verse 10 tells us, of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So this is just a classic uh, account of angelic appearances in scripture. You know, a guy is just walking along, minding his own business, and an angel just shows up in front of him, scaring the ever-loving pudding. You know, it was like, whoa, you know? And what's the angel's first thing that they say? Don't be afraid, right? And it's like, maybe you could choose a different method of just showing up. Like, send me a letter. There'll be a time. I'll be ready, you know? And then we can do this whole thing. And it's funny, I actually have seen two memes uh, this fall. One was sent to me by, by Matt McCaw. And the one that he sent me has this white furry cat, you know, just like classic rich lady cat or whatever that eats the food out of the china goblet, you know, or whatever. And, but some kid took like those googly eyes, you know, that wiggle around when you, and just pasted these googly eyes all over the face of this cat, you know, resembling what we know in the Old Testament as a cherubim, right? You know, just the eyes all over front and back and has got four different faces and all these wings. And that, you know, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about. And these memes all say, you know, something like um, angel in the Bible, like, don't be afraid, you know, and it's just like, and, and you know, the person's like, this is the scariest moment of my life ever past, present or future. Don't be afraid. So Zechariah, you know, he's He's got the sight on the bighorn sheep, you know, and he, he's in the, he's offering incense in the temple and he's like, okay, you gotta do this and you gotta do it just right. And then it's like, hallelujah, you know, and he's, whoa, yeah, do not be afraid. Okay. Just give me a second. Okay. Um, and, uh, and he says, don't be afraid for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And see if you can notice the similarities between what we know of Jesus's birth account. You know how it goes. You're pretty familiar with it. And John's uh, birth account. Because it says here that you shall call his name John. And so the name's already been picked out for John. Just like it was with Jesus. Mary and Joseph didn't have to go through babynames.com, you know, to pick the name out for Jesus. You know, that any parents that have been alive, uh, you know, raising kids during babynames.com, you know, and you're just like, we got to stay in the R's, man. We got to stay in the R's. Can't do it. We're going to T's. Titus doesn't sound anything like the Rogers name. We're going with Titus, right? And, uh, but John means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. For some reason, out of all the names that are out there, This is the name that God wanted for the one who would prepare the way and get out of the way for the Messiah. His name would be the Lord is gracious and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And imagine just the cool drink of water that is to Zechariah, whose wife Elizabeth was barren. And, you know, similar to these days, but if you're barren, man, so much of life is wrapped up on 
what it's going to look like for you and your family and are you going to have kids and what are your kids going to do and be in this and that. And if you don't get to live through those experiences, you feel like perhaps a second class citizen. And maybe some of you know that pain so well. I believe in what I've read is that that was exponentially more so in these day and age where everything in life was wrapped up in in your prodigy and in who was going to be coming and taking on the family from you. Uh, and so, but to live a life and to go into old age of just being so downcast because you did not have a child and then you've got an angel, probably just one of the two eyed angels, you know, we've got Gabriel here, right? Pretty normal looking, but maybe with some wings or something, you know, and, and he says, man, don't be afraid going to have a son. God is gracious is going to be his name, John, and you're going to have joy and gladness. Everyone's going to rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This is really interesting. John is the only person that we see in the New Testament who is said to have had the Holy Spirit filling him since, you know, what do you call it? Is that in utero or something? I, mean, I guess something like, I don't know. I haven't been paying attention during my last four children, you know, um, you know, but while the baby's in the oven cooking, right? Holy Spirit is upon uh, John. And, uh, and here's some of his role. John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so John, he is going to come and he is going to have an incredible role in his life. Oh my goodness, you guys, if you know Israel's history and Judah's history, and the years of captivity that they'd gone through with Babylon and Assyria and the dark ages and the 400 years of silence where no prophet has spoken. And really just the nation of Israel was just going after their own just fancies and worshiping anything under the sun. And they were just now under Roman occupation. It was a hard time for, for really what would be Judah. And, um, and there's just this promise that these this guy, John, is going to bring them back to know the Lord. Such a big promise there. And then also, he's going to go before him. You see that in verse 17? He will go before him. Who's the him? Who's it speaking of here? The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. I heard the word Jesus, the answer to every Sunday school question. You guys know it. Jesus, you know. Um, he's going to go before him. He's what's called the forerunner. And in typical dad joke fashion, since I've studied this for the last two weeks, every Toyota 4Runner that I see, I like to tell my kids and my wife, hey, see, they're driving the old John the Baptist edition. And literally, Lindsay was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, the 4Runner? It's gotten nothing from my family, but I'm keeping it up. Tenth time's a charm. I why don't you try doing this next time you're out with your friends? They don't know the Lord. Oh, the old John the Baptist edition. They're like, what is wrong with this guy? It's a perfect segue into sharing the gospel. <laughs> try it. You'll like it. And, uh, and so he goes before Jesus 
Interesting thing, he's going in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah. Oh, I don't even have time to get into that, but you could look at Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus talks about John the Baptist and he says, I don't know if you're ready for this, but he actually is Elijah. Not in a reincarnation sort of a thing, but that same just powerful ministry that that Old Testament supercharged prophet had is now living and active and moving in John the Baptist for such an incredible purpose. And so he just has this great ministry, turning the fathers back to the kids and all of this. And so verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And this is like, have you never read the story of Abraham and Sarah? You never read, this is totally new to you. Like, I don't think that God could ever do something like that. This is kind of what the Lord does all throughout the Bible. It's kind of his MO, right? And uh, he says, I, I don't know, I'm old, my wife's old. I, just, I really don't think that this is possible, Lord. And the angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. So just a quick recap of who's standing here right now. Big angel, kind of a big deal, right? Gabriel, don't know if you've heard of me. And I'm telling you this, this is just a message straight from the top. It's going to happen. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And now we're going to move to the story of the second baby of Christmas. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So Mary and Joseph are engaged in a sense. They are betrothed, with, which was a state much more binding among the Jews than our engagement is among us Westerners. It was a solemn undertaking that like a type of divorce was necessary uh, to break up this betrothal. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So, so here we have again, kind of just an angel showing up out of nowhere, right? And uh, this time, though, you don't quite get so much the scream, you know, as... Like, I'm not, we don't really know. Like, is she perplexed that there's an angel standing in front of her with googly eyes taped to his face? You know, no, probably not that part. Or is she perplexed because the angel gave a message that she, a virgin, was going to be pregnant? Okay. And so uh, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name 
Jesus. So once again, you don't get to get the book out, you know, how to pick out the perfect name that goes along with the, you know, the letters that you've picked as a family or whatever. You know, it's, we're just going to let you know right now, it's Jesus, okay? Or what we know as Joshua, okay? In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, all right? So um, it's funny, when Russell was growing up, he had a friend in his class, a kid in his class named Joshua, and he told this kid, hey, did you know that your name is Jesus in Aramaic? And the kid, he did not receive this well. It is not, it is not Jesus, you know? And you know, probably 10 years has gone by and now they uh, still see each other. I'm like, you should bring that up again. You should bring that up. Lead with the forerunner joke and then just transition into calling him Yeshua. See how that goes, you know? And, uh, but Joshua, Yeshua, or Jesus means the Lord is salvation. And in Matthew's gospel, it says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Why Jesus? Why the name Jesus? He shall save his people from their sins. Next time you're at the mill working and someone uses the Lord's name in vain, just follow up with that with, and he shall save his people from their sins. Okay. It works wonders. Trust me. You don't get this job for not having experiences like that. Uh, so you shall call his name Jesus. The Lord is salvation. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And so just these descriptions of who Jesus was going to be set him apart from all others and makes him the son of God in a special sense that the father is really one that uh, he has known since eternity past through eternity future. Uh, Jesus knows in the gospel of John that when he calls himself the son of God, it means he's God. And the Jews knew that. That's why they tried to crucify him. That's why they did kill him was because of blasphemy. And John, the apostle knew it as he wrote that gospel, that son of God doesn't mean that Jesus was created, but that he's first ranked. And so uh, as we move on, we see Gabriel there has spoken of him to be the recipient of the throne of his father, David. And something that's so incredible of Jesus being the Messiah and coming through the line of David is that one day he is going to return and he's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And we look forward to that. Is, that is eschatology. That is something that we look forward to again one day. And I personally believe that that's going to be soon possibly within even our lifetime. Man, what an honor. I encourage you, if that sounds strange to you, start digging, start seeking that out because what a shame to be the people alive during that one point of human history where Christ returns and we are found sleeping or we are found sinning. We are not found looking up and waiting earnestly for his return. And so, man, as we look at what's going on in Israel today, all of the difficulty of Israel, my heart just yearns. You know, we, we sing the Christmas song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Who, uh, what is it, something in lowly exile here. I, I, I do know the song. Who yearns, I think it's a yearn, who yearns 
in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Oh, we just pray for Israel. We long for them to know Messiah, and we can't wait for him to come and to set his throne up uh, there in Jerusalem again. And verse 33 says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Oh, Rory, you're so silly. Just silly mumbo jumbo that you're talking about. Jesus coming back. Oh, goodness. And then that it will actually be here on this earth that he sits in that promised throne of his great, 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 great grandfather, David. Oh, my God. It's so silly. Why don't you just count your losses and move on to something else, Rory? And you silly Christians. And it's like. I'm sorry, but when I read the Bible, I read that he's going to rule and reign from the throne of his father, David, not for never, but forever. And I don't, I don't really see that happening yet. I'm looking to that day when he will rule and reign from Jerusalem and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I don't know a man? Where Zacharias had been disbelieving, uh, Mary was actually puzzled. And Mary understood Gabriel to mean that she would bear a child without the intervention of a man. And perhaps that the conception would even be immediate. And the angel answers and says to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And so we have here what's a very delicate expression that shows how the incarnation happened. Very interesting. I I prayed during worship today, Psalm 40, Hebrews 10 references, um, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. That's believed to be uh, the final words of the son of God in heaven, uh, God eternal, who then goes on the mission to take on a body of flesh on the earth. And and he's looking down there on the earth and he sees all of Israel just trying to just wink at their sin by offering some barbecue to the Lord, uh, rather than like living in passionate love relationship with the Lord. And he says, sacrifice and offering you don't desire, but a body you've prepared for me. And it's sort of believed that like kind of at that point, he gets into like the, the capsule or whatever, you know, and just like it charges and just goes boom, right down to earth. And uh, says here, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she was with child. Almost like a gift of the Holy Spirit from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Some people have tongues. Some people have prophecy. You know, some people have the gift of administration. And Mary had the Holy Spirit's gift of Emmanuel. Like right there placed into her womb. And uh, and so this rules out crude ideas of mating the Holy Spirit with Mary. The Holy Spirit uh, over uh, came upon and the power of the highest over shadows. And then this incredible deity expression of Jesus that the one who will be born will be called the son of God. Multiple times we've seen that so far that Jesus, the Christ child is the son of God. Verse 36 through 38. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. So Mary's kind of like, how in the world will I have a child? Um, I mean, I don't know a man. 
you know? And, uh, and he says, Hey, you know, your cousin Elizabeth and she's pregnant right now in her old age. Like, don't worry about it. The Lord's able to work miracles. And so Mary said, behold, the maid servants of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So just an incredible expression from Mary where she just says, Hey, I'm your slave. I'm your most humble servant. I'm just here at your service. So do what you want with me. And I think it was, uh, uh, gosh, the Christ-centered commentary said, this is how faithful people respond to God's plan, even when they don't understand it. Just, you know, I don't know what you may know or not know about where the Lord has you in life or what's going on. And it doesn't seem like it makes sense and it's painful and it hurts or how could it ever happen? And all your job is to say, I'm just here at your service, Lord. Do whatever you want in my life. You are worth trusting in. And so Mary responds in faith. Uh, listen to what uh, is said by, uh, gosh, what? No, the guy's name is blanking in my mind. I forgot to write his name. It's in my sources. Uh, oh, it's one of my favorite guys. Can't remember. It'll come to me. Like, 30 minutes from now when you guys are all on your way home. Well, he says this. The virgin birth is a distinctive Christian doctrine. There's no Jewish parallel, but attention is sometimes drawn to birth stories among the Greek legends. The suggestion is made that Christian apologists produce the story in a spirit of anything they can do, we can do better. But none of the parallels adduced is really relevant. They usually tell of a divine person having relations with a human, usually a God with a woman. A truly virgin birth is unique. Marshall emphasizes the Jewish character of the narrative. It's unlikely to derive from pagan sources. So something extra special about the virgin birth or the virgin conception. And so now we see Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard this greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I know, I think it was last year, I was trying to find my notes to when I taught on Mary's story. I think it was recently, it might have been last year. Sometimes the holidays blend together as to when I teach what. Um, but I do recall just thinking about how special it was for Mary and Elizabeth to be with child at the same time. I don't know, any gals here, you were pregnant at the same time as your bestie. You know, you're pregnant at the same time as your sister, or your cousin, or whatever. And I grew up on a, on a ranch in Klamath Falls. And kind of like the women were all pregnant, like at the same time. And then we are all, we're all like the same age, all of us cousins. And we just had so much fun together, but you know, gals that are pregnant, um, and spend that time together, they're just swapping tips and you know, they're all reading what to expect when you're expecting, you know, and then they dog ear those pages and hand them on to the next. And there's just something special about it. And Mary and Elizabeth have just this unique moment where they're both with child and with holy children together at the same time. And so it's just this great moment there in verse 41 when, you know, I don't know what Elizabeth's doing. She's doing something in the, the house or whatnot. And she hears this, 
you know, and it's Mary. And the moment she heard Mary's, um, even the angel said, blessed are you among women. There was just something blessed about Mary. She comes in, her voice is just so wonderful. And as uh, Elizabeth hears it, John the Baptist hears it and leaps in her womb. And it says that she's full of the Holy Spirit And I wonder when John the Baptist was filled up with the Holy Spirit since since before birth. I I wonder if it was this moment that that, remember how it said that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb? And I wonder if right here is that moment where the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and also comes upon John the Baptist. I mean, if she drinks something, he drinks something, right? So why wouldn't he also have the Holy Spirit? I don't know how it really works, but you know what I mean. And so she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she's going to kind of prophesy out, speaking with a loud voice, maybe a little too loud, you know, um, and says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knows that uh, the child that Mary has is the Lord. Uh, is the Messiah, is the anointed one. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And that, that phrase there, leaped for joy, is the word meaning exultation. There was like worship that happened, and exultation happened in the womb. I mean, this is, this is a little baffling. Like, you don't get into this stuff every day of like, you got a spirit-filled baby worshiping in the womb. I mean, this guy, John, John the bee, you know, got the camel's hair on in the tummy, you know, still eating, but, you know, hasn't done any of that yet. But he's, he's worshiping in exaltation as the Messiah, his creator, the baby next door, is, is there with him, okay? And, uh, and blessed is she who believed. For there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And so now we have the song of Mary, and I'm going to kind of skim that. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. The reason I'm skimming is we feel like, I don't want to overdo it for you guys. did it, I think, last year. So um, we'll come back to it later. But uh, she just begins to worship and says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. And he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And so I wonder if you've noticed, there's like key words that are repeated throughout Mary's song, 
throughout the narrative, then Zechariah's poem in just a little bit. Uh, and there's a key word, there's a number of key words, but one is mercy, 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 you know? Um, and one thing that we see, of, you know, Mary sings about the mercy of God towards man. But one thing that I just noticed in my studying for kind of John the Baptist was that uh, it was um, the birth of John was considered such a happy event that it was the Lord's mercy. Just that topic that runs through the chapters here, uh, God's mercy. And any time a child is born, it's just wonderful mercy of the Lord uh, to, to give the family uh, a child and just shows the value of life there. Everyone who heard of John's birth considered it the mercy of the Lord. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. And his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet. And then you can almost hear the little chalk on the tablet right here. Right. And he wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. So it's just wonderful. Elizabeth and Zechariah seem to be on the same page about what name they were calling the child. And uh, as, as I was reading, one man wrote, uh, well, they probably talked about it, even though Zechariah you know, was using the tablet. And he probably had, you know, he had a long time, something like 10 months to just do nothing but write on the tablet. You know, what, what do we have to talk about? Make sure we name him John. <laughs> You know, that's very important uh, in the story. And so, uh, so they all marveled. They named him John. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue was loose. Almost Saul of Tarsus type of a thing. Remember Saul of Tarsus, when he got saved, he was blind and scales were over his eyes. And then there was a moment there when the scales all fell off, you know. And here we have someone that's, that's tongue seems to be bound in a knot almost. And finally, the moment of the fulfillment of the promise, it's like that knot is undone. His tongue is loosed and he spoke, praising God. Praise came just flying out of that mouth that had been silent and had been observed. I mean, imagine he's there and Mary comes and visits and they're talking about the Christ child. And he's just like, you know, and finally it's like, I have just been observing something so incredible the last 10 months and I haven't been able to talk. And so, uh, immediately what is it? Praise starts flying out. Uh, JC Ryle, uh, put it that he shows that his nine months dumbness had not been inflicted on him in vain. He is no longer faithless, but believing he now believes every word that Gabriel had spoken to him and every word of his message shall be obeyed. Let us take heed that affliction does us good as it is to Zacharias. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. And how wonderful that is that suffering and anguish or suffering and not being able to speak and the muteness. He didn't turn his back on the Lord, but he was facing the Lord and all that God was doing. And so verse 65, then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. Everyone was just awestruck in the events that had happened. In verse 66, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? 
and the hand of the Lord was with him. So now we're going to wrap up here with, we skipped the song of Mary because we did that recently. And I want to look at the song of Zacharias as we close up, or really the poem of Zacharias. Now, uh, Zacharias's poem is given in, this is a word I had to look up. I did not know this word. I still don't know if I'm saying it right. It's the only time I've ever heard it. Strophe. Okay. There are four strophes in this poem. And that essentially speaks of almost like stanzas, but not quite anyone here. You're a poet and you totally know it. Okay. Any poet likes you're like, dude, you got to take a poetry class. Okay. Um, well, good. So I look really smart right now teaching all of you about the strophes, right? Uh, these strophes are sections of poetry and there's four of them. And there's a reason I'm making such a big deal about this. I'm going to do a spoiler alert for you right now. Because three of the four strophes in this poem are about Jesus the Messiah coming. And only one of the four are about his son, John the Baptist. And this is just incredible. I mean, his son was just born. He's, they've been barren. It was a miraculous thing. The angel Gabriel and all this and that. He's been full of the Holy Spirit since the womb. And guess who I'm going to make a big deal about? I'm going to make a big deal about the Messiah. So let's look at it right here, okay? By the way, this has been called by some the last prophecy of the Old Testament and the first prophecy of the New Testament. Even in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says the Old Testament prophets were until John. Okay, so here's Zechariah. He's saying the last Old Testament prophecy and at the same time, the first New Testament prophecy. Here we go. And the first strophe is uh, 68 through 70, and it's thanksgiving for the Messiah. Verse 68, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. So there's some key words and I don't know if you've got a pen with you, you take notes in your Bible, you might underline just some of these key words that show us God's redemptive plan for us. Zechariah is writing about the Messiah and how he has visited and redeemed his people. So redeemed is something that this Christ child is going to do. He's going to redeem us. He's going to purchase us is what the language speaks of off of the auction block of sin and of slavery to death. And, uh, and then Zechariah, I'm sure has in his heart and redeem from the Romans, uh, you know, the Roman rule or the rule of the wicked. We see also that a horn of salvation is raised up and a horn is a symbol of strength. Uh, in youth group right now, middle school group, we're reading about Daniel's prophecies. And we read uh, Perry taught a couple weeks ago about the little horn who rises up out of the other horns. And we know him to be the Antichrist, but horns speak of authority and uh, strength. And here we see that Jesus is a horn. 
a horn of salvation, just so strong, so powerful. Um, we just got done watching the NFR this last week, the national finals rodeo. And I was just watching, uh, these bull riders get on these bulls and now they're wearing football helmets, you know, and, uh, you know, thinking of tough Heedman and, you know, bodacious, just rocking tough's face. It's a old historical thing that happened in bull riding. And, uh, you just look at the strength of these bulls and even in the shoot, Last, you know, just in the split second, they'll just throw their head back, you know, and you're like, watch your face, watch your face, you know, and as I'm watching the bull riders get ready, some of the bulls have horns that just are mounted on the head of those animals, you know, and they're clanking against the chute. And, you know, Lane Frost was killed by the, uh, the horn of a bull. So much strength, so much power and a weapon that can be used to fight. And for Israel, the weapon that will come to fight for them will be the horn of the Messiah, who is a horn of salvation for, uh, for us in the house of his servant, David. Look at verse uh, 71 through 75. We see the great deliverance that will come through the Messiah. It says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Of course, Zechariah is just aware of the Roman Empire and how harsh and cruel they have been. And then before that, all the drama with the Greeks, um, you know, before that. Now, and before that, the Medo-Persian Empire and the way they were treated by the Persians. And before that, the Babylonians. And, and man, it's just, it was a, read the book of Daniel and you'll know kind of the history of Israel. It's just incredible prophecy. So you have the, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the uh, Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then his generals and the wicked way they treated Israel. And then all the way through the Roman Empire. And so Zechariah just writes about, finally, finally, we will be saved from our enemies. And we know that the real great enemy that they will be saved from is themselves. <laughs> the sin that they have plunged themselves and all of humanity into, this horn of salvation will come to save them. And then also just the wonderful truth, save us from anyone who would hate us. Maybe that's you. I don't, I don't know if anyone here just has that enemy that just, they are your rival in life. They hate you. Life is hard because of them. Just the other day at youth group, I was like, how's it going, buddy, to a kid? And he just says, oh, there's this kid at school. And he is just, oh, it is rough with this. I mean, it was like the first thing he says, like, well, let's pray right now for this kid and for your relationship. And how wonderful to know that if you have enemies, turn to the Lord, the horn of salvation, for him to do a work that would save you from your enemies. Verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So there's that word mercy again. I don't know if you'd underline just so far, just these great redemptive words, redeemed, salvation, saved, mercy. And then verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So another thing that this, you know, right now he's just the baby next door in the womb next door, right? It's just, he's not even born yet. And Zacharias is so excited that he is on the way and he will bring deliverance. It's in Jesus's job description to deliver. 
And if you are someone here today, you know, one of the greatest hopes of Christmas is that the deliverer is coming. The deliverer is here. And you can turn to him and all of the things that you're bound by. And he will break every chain by the power of the gospel. Turn to Jesus and watch him move. He's the great deliverer. Uh, so that uh, there's a purpose from this so that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of his life. And so wonderful first two of the strophes are about Messiah. Now the third one is about John the Baptist in the place of John in it all verses 76 to 77. And you child will be called the prophet of the highest. I mean, I don't know if it's like a Lion King moment, you know, where he's got John the Baptist and he's like, and he just starts speaking a poem and it's like not even about John the Baptist. He's kind of looking off. Uh, What a wonderful Messiah he's going to be. Oh, delivering and saving us. A horn of salvation is what will be. Delivering us from all of our enemies. Causing them to worship the Lord. And Oh yeah, get back to this. So anyways, John... Um, you're going to be great. You're going to do, do a great job, right? And so he says, and you, child, he kind of looks back over to him, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Some will call you a forerunner, John. You'll prepare his ways. Someone once said that John the Baptist prepared the way and then got out of the way. If you know John's story, I mean, he, he was there and he was working hard and he is baptizing left and right and he is turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He is just turning people to the Lord, getting them ready for the... And then Jesus shows up on that day. He's like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And then he just says... <laughs> this is like, I, I, I yield it all to you. And even his disciples will say, hey, you know, like, did you know that... Um, you know, they're, they're all going over to him or, you know, and, and he just says, you know what? He must increase now. I must decrease. He's like from the baby, he knew that it was all about the one coming, his cousin who was coming after him. And it goes on to say, uh, you'll give uh, knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And so in baptism, he would speak to them of the forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in the Messiah uh, that was going to be sent soon after. And then the fourth little strophe here, messianic salvation found in verses 78 and 79, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. And so he kind of, and then he can kind of like, begins dreaming again about Messiah, right? Like, oh, the tender mercies of God through which the day spring on high has visited us. Um, this is also tender mercy. You gotta love that phrase. You know, I only think of the donkey from Shrek telling Shrek, you got to, got to have a little tenderness, you know? And isn't it amazing that the Lord has tenderness towards his creation? Tender mercy, or some translations say, merciful compassion. Uh, there's a, the, the guy who wrote Luke's version of the Christ exalting commentary. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I practiced it at home. I'm going to try it just to give him credit where it's due. Annie Oakley. No, 
Um, Eniabuile Tabiti. Think you can do better than that? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, really great, some things that he said. It's not the guy I was thinking of before, which still is not coming to me. Um, but he says this, that, uh, this merciful compassion or tender mercies, that's the only reason anyone is ever forgiven of sin. Mercy. You cannot earn forgiveness. You cannot demand forgiveness. You cannot swap forgiveness in a trade. There would be no peace in salvation if we had to earn, demand, or buy forgiveness. We would only worry if we had done enough, if we were strong enough, or if we had paid enough. Forgiveness comes only by mercy. So all of this redemption that comes through the Christ child, it's through the tender mercy of our God. And then this incredible phrase, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Uh, I just love that phrase, uh, day spring, essentially saying light has dawned or the day has sprung. Jesus is the sunshine. He's the sunshine. He brings light. And I wonder how many of you here today, you've been dwelling in darkness There has just been a thundercloud over your life. It has been dark and you're not living in the victory that Jesus has come to bring you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Let the day spring shine upon you. One of the most beautiful early passages in Matthew's gospel. It's after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when he then goes into Galilee. And this prophecy is fulfilled in Galilee where it says, A people who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Did you know that as Christians, no more darkness, friends. No more hanging out in the darkness. No more being in wickedness and hanging out in those places that are depraved and wicked and sinful and demonic. And no more even as a Christian, just wallowing in the mire, all right? You're not a pig, all right? You've been made in the image of God to behold his beauty. Stand in the light of the day spring. Jesus. Did you know that's one of his names? Jesus, the day spring. And it says the final verse here, or final two verses, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's what the day spring does, brings light to those who are in darkness to guide our feet in the way of peace. I like the description of what the day spring is to do, to give light, to uh, guide our feet along the path. And even you have a little bit of the Psalm 23 passage there, don't you? Of uh, the Lord is my shepherd. And what does he do? He leads us, right? And he leads us, uh, even though we walk through the what? Valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're with me. The day spring is with me. And maybe you're here today and you are one who's backslidden and you have just backslidden so far, man. You went, you were in the valley. You were enjoying the, the light of life and presence of the Lord. And for whatever reason, you have slipped and tripped and slid way down into the muck and the mire. You've backslidden. 
Jeremiah the prophet speaks of being backslidden. And not to be too crude, but the word backslide actually comes from the idea of animals sliding and falling in their own fecal material. Okay? And if you've worked cattle and loaded cattle into a truck, or you know, you know exactly what that looks like as cattle are trying to move up a ramp. And you know, man, that you were going up. We were going, me and the Lord, we were sailing together. And then I did that one look at that thing. Or I listened to that one thing I shouldn't have listened to. Or I went to that place and I yielded my heart over to that person, that place, that thing, or that idea. And I have slipped and slid away in my own just filth. And I don't even know where to find God anymore. It's Christmas. It's a special time for people to remember the light, the day spring. Just return today. Return to him. We're going to move towards communion right now. And communion is a time where you do that. You return regularly to thank Jesus for his body, to thank Jesus for his blood, and that he loved you so much that he died for you. He went through violent means to redeem you and to save you and to show you tender mercies. And if that's you and you've been backslidden and you don't even know how to come back, I invite you to the communion table today. Take the elements of God's mercy and during the final song, ponder God's mercy and confess your sin to him. Acknowledge your sin to him. This is what I have done and been doing. But I know that in you there is forgiveness. And receive by faith today that forgiveness. And receive by faith today that new power in your life to now live in obedience after him. And as you spend that time with the Lord, confessing your sins and receiving afresh today, his mercy, his forgiveness, take those elements into yourself, eat that bread and thank God for his body that was nailed to that Roman tree for you. Thank God for his blood that was poured out there at the cross of Calvary that would wash away your sins and rejoice this Christmas that even though you were lost, today you were found. Mary herself said it in her song, for God has regarded my helpless estate. And that line's from, uh, well, I think the line is taken from Mary and put into amazing grace. No, it is well with my soul. That's where it's found. For God has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Let's rejoice in that today. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me? And I'm going to get over to the guitar and the worship team can come on up. So this word Noel is pretty special. It speaks of the birth or a birth or a coming. We often sing the Christmas carol, the first Noel. It was really that first birth that brought salvation. Let's receive in our hearts today all that that birth brings for us. Today, Lord, we just confess our sins. We turn to you, the merciful, 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 merciful. So many times we read of mercy today. Show mercy to us, your people. Show mercy to us as a state. Show mercy to us as a nation. Lord, let all that is in your heart 
in the Christmas story be moved out in us by the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit in receptive hearts here in Prime Hill. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.